Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I hope you feel encouraged and um, enthused by your experience uh, already this morning. And thank you for uh, attending this seminar. Um, I'd really like to welcome you here. My name is Matthew Van Dyvenboot. Uh, I'm one of the directors at Bible Society. And really, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this morning uh, to our seminar on um, the historical and biblical roots of women's suffrage. Um, this is obviously um, a key year to be thinking about these kind of things with the centenary of the Representation of the People's Act from 1918. I'm sure you've picked up along the way lots of um, different kind of cultural um, touch points which will allow us to kind of reflect on the significance of this stage in the journey uh, towards equality of rights. Um, I hope that you will also uh, find some challenge and uh, encouragement in what Sarah is going to uh, share with us then around the biblical and spiritual and Christian roots um, of some of that movement, which is a story that's not always told. Um, this is a Bible Society seminar. We're one of uh, the principal sponsor of the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast. If you don't know anything about Bible Society, we're um, a global Christian charity operating in over 145 countries around the world. Our mission is around making the Bible available. So that involves translation and um, uh, looking at how we um, can kind of package up the Bible to help people access that better. Um, that includes people who uh, maybe find it difficult to read, so looking at Braille translations and audio translations too, but also thinking about how do we um, help people see the Bible's relevance and credibility for them in their lives. And that includes a lot of the work we do here in the UK, including things like the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast, which is um, all about exploring uh, the credibility and contribution of Christianity to public life here in the UK. So it's our real pleasure to welcome you here. To help us explore this theme this morning, I'm delighted to introduce you to you. We are, we are quite keen that we would have female contributors uh, on this theme, and it's a real delight uh, to welcome both Dr. Sarah Williams and Chinny McDonald. Um, I, the format of this morning is I'll just briefly introduce you to Chinny. Chinny is then going to introduce you to Sarah, because Chinny is acting as our kind of moderator this morning. So, um, uh, and then Sarah is going to talk to us for about 25 minutes or so on this theme. Ginny is then going to pick up some of what Sarah has said and kind of reflect on it herself uh, and then ask Sarah a few questions. And during that time, I just encourage you to think of any other questions or observations you might like to make because then in the final part of our seminar, we'll have an opportunity to hear from you and to dialogue together. Sarah's very keen, I think, that this is a conversation uh, rather than just a kind of um, uh, yeah, one-way contribution. So to introduce Chinny, Chinny is a, is a friend of mine, so it's, it feels funny sort of introducing a friend in quite formal terms. Uh, uh, but uh, let me say some plaudits about her for you. Uh, Chinny McDonald is a communications specialist in the Christian sphere. She's currently on maternity leave. Um, you might have seen her little boy Keir around. Uh, from her role at World Vision as head of Christian influence, she's going to be moving on from World Vision uh, when she finishes her maternity leave to, um, to move to Christian Aid as head of media and PR, so congratulations on that move, Chinning. She broadcasts regularly on BBC Radio 4's Fought for the Day and Daily Service, and she's written extensively for both online and offline uh, publications. She's authored two theology books and is currently working on her third, although I think um, maternity leave might have slowed the pro <laughs> process of that just slightly. Um, so it's a delight to have you here, Chinny. Thank you for giving up your morning, and please do introduce Sarah for us.
always strange to have yourself introduced, but it is my turn to introduce Sarah. And Dr. Sarah Williams is a teacher, writer, and communicator known for bringing history to life in a way that speaks to our contemporary context and culture. She's an Oxford-trained historian who taught for many years as part of the modern history faculty at the University of Oxford, before moving to British Columbia to teach international postgraduates at Regent College. Sarah and her husband, Paul, have just returned um, um, from Vancouver, where they were for 11 years. Her husband, Paul, is chief exec of Bible Society. They returned two years ago. Sarah remains a research professor in the history of Christianity at Regent College, where she now teaches all over the world, helping the church recover its memory, which is fascinating. Sarah's research interests lie in British political and cultural history. She is the author of Religious Belief in Popular Culture, and co-author of Redefining Christian Britain. She's just finishing a book on changing perceptions of gender and sexuality in Britain from circa 1790 to the present day. Um, I'm sure you're gonna be fascinated and inspired by what she has to say. So please welcome Sarah. Exactly 116 years ago this evening, and I loved it when I found that piece of evidence, <coughs> the 19th of June, 1912, a woman by the name of Maud Royden stood up at the Queen's Hall here in London, and she made this statement. The women's, the women's movement was the most profoundly moral movement since the Reformation of the Christian Church. Now, that's a strong claim, very strong claim, and it met with resounding applause. Actually, there was nothing really very unusual in 1912 to talk about the women's movement in these sorts of terms, as a religious revival movement, in fact. A year before Royden gave that address at the Queen's Hall, in June 1911, 4,000 women gathered and marched over Westminster Bridge to these buildings... And as that parade stretched out for seven miles with banners, costumes, music, pageantry of every kind, what was so striking to the correspondents reporting on it was the incredible quantity of Christian imagery, the large number of processional crosses, banners with verses of scripture woven into them, and the entire contingent of clergymen looking extremely out of place in a sea of women <laughs> carrying their own banner, which said, for our altars and our homes. Now, many women were dressed in purple on that particular march, signifying, of course, the imagery of a crusade. And right at the head of the procession, bizarrely, I think, was a woman riding on a white horse dressed in the armour of Joan of Arc, well, not the actual armor, but to look like Joan of Arc. This was a holy war. From July to December 1909, a prayer vigil was held just outside the window here, and it came to be known as the Great Watch. It lasted all the way from July to December, women clutching in the cold, candles in jars, praying. And they were not simply praying for the law to change to allow women to vote as men, they had a much larger vision in mind. They understood themselves to be, I quote, 
spreading light, bringing about a moment in which God would bring the nation of Britain to himself. They spoke of suffragists, the mild version, and suffragettes, the less mild version, as being sent out into the nation, like those 70 in Luke 10 that Jesus sends out into the nation, witnessing to a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom where inequality and injustice were overthrown. It took until March 1918, of course, and four years of brutal war before the House of Commons finally passed the Representation of the People Act, giving the vote to women over the age of 30, all men over the age of 21, tripling the size of the electorate in that one day, which of course then rose again uh, to a higher number in 1928, when finally women were given full suffrage on exactly the same terms as men. So this year we're celebrating that act, that bringing in of women into the nation in terms of suffrage. And it's right that we celebrate it. It's an incredibly important moment in the political history of this country. But it's odd, don't you think, that actually almost very few of us, I think, have actually heard about the Christian dimensions of this movement, about how deeply ingrained within the political narrative at the time Christianity actually was. In fact, more often than not, and I've heard this a lot this year in various places as we've talked about the act, the story of votes for women is told as a liberation from the constraining and subjugating effects of the unremitting patriarchy of Christianity. I've heard that story, particularly evangelical Christianity, with its prescriptive gender protocols and its strong emphasis on the family. Obtaining the vote has got itself slotted into a large story, a grand narrative, which ends ultimately in the sexual revolution of the 1960s, in which women finally cast off the last of the shackles of Christianity, escaping and emancipating and entering that golden age of secularity and sexual freedom. Embedded actually inside the historical narrative, at least the traditional historical narrative, is this assumption that faith and feminism, just like religion and modernity, are inherently antithetical categories. Stories matter. They shape our imaginations. They matter. And this traditional second wave feminist version of the story, written largely in the 1980s, has formed such a compelling narrative that it's only recently that scholars have begun to ask it all kinds of questions. And as scholars return to the evidence in what is now being called the post-secular turn, what they're finding is startling. The Bible was the text of the women's movement, the one authority that stood above the state, an authority that circumvented all the assertions of male power and privilege, revealing a whole different way of perceiving reality. And the work I've been doing, which I just simply want to tell you a little bit about in order to provoke our conversations this morning, I've been focusing on a woman by the name of Josephine Butler, Born in 1828, she died in 1906. She didn't get to see that moment of the passing of the bill. 
but she was deeply involved in the women's movement, in, as, you'll, as you'll see. And I just want to tell you about her, really, in order to illustrate very simply the deep connections between the Bible and the women's movement, faith and feminism, particularly even ideological feminism, not just ephemeral elements of it. In 1927, Millicent Fawcett, that famed leader of the Women's Social and Political Union, described Josephine Butler as the most dis distinguished woman of the 19th century. graduate in a footnote. So actually, she's very little known about, which is bizarre, given the fact that Melissa Fawcett calls her the most distinguished woman in the 19th century. Another tribute published just a year after Butler died said of her that she was one of the great people of the world in character, in work done, in influence on others. She was, she was among the few great people who've molded the course of things. And it was this phrase, to mold the course of things, that gripped my attention and has really driven my research back into Butler's writing, all of it, over the last year, which has been an amazing experience. As soon as the suffrage bill was passed in 1918, the women's movement fragmented into lots of disparate groups with different kinds of political agendas, different ways of reading what it meant for women to vote. Interwar feminists, notoriously divided group, had one thing in common. They all agreed on the significance of Josephine Butler's leadership. All agreed that she was the quintessential mother of modern feminism. For 16 years, from the late 1860s through to the mid-1880s, Butler led the campaign to repeal the contagious diseases legislation. I'll, I'll talk about the terms of that contagious diseases legislation in a minute. Let me just, I, wa I, I want to tell it to you as a story. History always should be told in the form of stories of happening. During the 16-year period, she worked tirelessly, helping women caught in the underworld of the Victorian sex trade. She raised public and parliamentary awareness of the plight of the destitute woman. She worked with leaders from every political party and from every religious denomination. She formed alliances and friendships, and above all, she formed networks of prayer. With some women, Butler prayed consistently for over 30 years. And these relational encounters that people had as they worked and prayed together to repeal the Contagious Diseases Act challenged existing social categories and historians would argue that it's within those relational networks that feminism emerges as a defined movement. Indeed, the women's movement itself and the campaign for suffrage found its form, as it were. The Ladies' National Association, as this group was called, worked among prostitutes gathering evidence, hearing testimonies, collecting statistics, visiting working-class families, introducing local education and employment reforms, giving legal aid, encouraging women to resist the legal requirements of the Act, working from the margins to reconfigure the social and political landscape. And for Butler, co 
compassion itself was a radical form of political criticism. And during these years, these 16 years of the campaign, Butler was pelted with excrement. She was physically assaulted on numerous occasions, as were her husband and her three sons. She was the victim of four separate arson attacks. She received repeated death threats. And at one time, it took as many as 14 bodyguards to protect her from violent mobbing as she entered a schoolroom in front of her to give a speech. The entire Butler family was shunned by respectable society. And I do say this with the deepest respect, but never on any occasion during the long anti-slavery campaign did William Wilberforce and his family face any of these experiences. And yet, he hasn't fallen off the pages of history at any point. Butler did for women what Wilberforce did for slaves. Butler offered a new kind of social and political imagination, which, as I'm arguing, is drawn directly from the Bible. At the center of her thinking, of all her work, was this relationship depicted so vividly in the Gospels between Jesus and the outcast woman. That's Butler's phrase, the outcast woman. It's a very important phrase that she uses. The object of contemporary fear, hatred, lust, whom Jesus, far from shunning, welcomed. And it's Butler's ability to reimagine the prostitute as a human being with dignity, with worth, equal worth before the law, with voice, that makes her work so radical and of such lasting significance. And the chief connection that Butler makes, which I think is extremely pertinent for us still, is the way in which a society treats its most vulnerable members, however small a minority that may be, is actually a reflection of the core values and attitudes on which that entire society is founded. And the core attitudes might be hidden, as indeed the underworld of the Victorian sex trade was, as far as possible, hidden from public view. But these values nonetheless shape and infuse the entire value system. And by casting light on those hidden attitudes and assumptions, Butler not only challenged the dominant paradigms of her period, she actually also created an alternative. Suffering was central to her political imagination. In August 1864, the Butler's only daughter, Eva, fell from the banisters in the Butler's home in Cheltenham onto a tiled hallway before. It took her six hours to die, died in a terrible agony in her parents' arms after every, every attempt was made to save her. Never can I lose that memory of that hallway. The fall, the sudden cry, and then the silence. She was our only daughter, the light and joy of our lives. And this event, this tragic event, literally changed the course of Butler's privileged life. She was a grey by birth. From the, her uncle was Lord Grey, Prime Minister at the time of the Great Reform Act of 1832, all the uh, Earl Grey Tea associations. She was of a privileged background. And she's happily married to a man who says of her, she is my perfect equal in everything. But this moment of Eva's death, as you read through the corpus of Butler's work, an extraordinary moment of, of deep anguish. And she enters a two-year period of dark despair and depression. Let me just read her words. 
But who can write the rationale of grief? And who can explain its mysteries, its apparent inconsistencies and unreasonableness, its weakness and its strength? I suffered much. I only knew then, when my heart ached night and day, the only solace would seem to be to find other hearts that ached with more reason than mine. And it's at that point that Butler starts to visit the Brownlow workhouse in the poorest district of Liverpool, which, as you remember, was one of the key slave trading ports in the British Isles. So Liverpool has a very symbolic history and a history of extreme exploitation and poverty. And she describes in her autobiography how she would go down in the midst of her own black depression and sit on the cellar floor with women who, for a few pennies, were, were um, separating the frayed strands of rope that was used in the caulking of ships that went out from the docks in Liverpool. And it talks about how, as she sat there, she made friends with these women, finding out about their lives, hearing their stories. Some of them, when they were too ill to work, the butlers invited them to come and live, and many of them actually to die in their home with great dignity. And in this paradoxical world of the gospel, suffering, both corporate and personal for Butler, becomes this seedbed of transformation in her own life. And it's the connection that she makes between her own grief and the corporate grief of womankind that lies at the heart of what is an overtly feminist consciousness that Butler so uniquely fosters. There's an intrinsic link in everything she writes, which I found so fascinating as I've been reading it over this last year, between the facility to perceive and name injustice and anguish, human grief, <coughs> that perception and anguish are related. And she understands, but understands her vocation as an entering into the experience of the outcast woman, not to judge, but like Christ to suffer with. And creating through intercession, that's a really important word because prayer is central to, to Butler's whole way of thinking. Creating through intercession an identification, a solidarity of pain that allows the one who prays to articulate what is otherwise an inarticulate cry of pain. The same year that Butler first went to the Brownlow workhouse, right here the contagious diseases legislation were passed by Parliament, instituted first in 1864, subsequently extended 1867, 1869. The acts were passed to deal with an epidemic of venereal disease that was spreading through the armed forces in Britain. Under the terms of this act, any woman residing in a garrison town or port suspected of prostitution could be detained by the police subject to a fortnightly examination with no equivalent examination being required of men. Butler went on to call this actually a, legal, a form of legalised rape. If a woman was found to be suffering from venereal disease, she was incarcerated in a locked hospital unit for up to nine months. If the woman refused to comply with a compulsory examination, she was brought before a magistrate where without any form of legal representation, she bore sole responsibility to prove that she was virtuous. Now, the acts appeared at the outset to be really, really minor pieces of legislation. They passed through Parliament with almost no recognition and public comment. They were brought in, as it were, 
as self-evidently good measures that were expedient to deal with the problem of unclean women and protecting the armed forces. Prostitution was viewed at the time as an, an unfortunate but inevitable expedient of men's natural proclivities. And that's a, that's a whole medical discourse that's really important to understand that. Actually, you just deal with it by turning a blind eye. But for Butler, these acts tear away the veil of what was a deeply rooted social abuse that caused untold pain. And she had seen firsthand some of the effects of that. The acts were concrete. They were a symbolic and concrete example of this fundamental problem, the problem of the sexual double standard. One code for men, one code for women. And this double standard had, has, to put it in the present tense, as well as the past, no legitimacy in the light of scripture. In scripture, Butler found, as the abolitionists before her, like Wilberforce, who was from an abolitionist family, recalls her, they found in scripture the absolute equality of rights and opportunities between all human beings, including male and female. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it's that scripture out of which Butler's feminist theory that was so influential in this time period is derived. In a sense, you could almost call it a lectio divina on that one passage of scripture. If these laws, these contagious diseases laws, were left unchecked, Butler argued, any other reform, however good it might be, would ultimately be ineffectual. To leave underlying moral inconsistencies unchallenged, to reform would be like building a beautiful building over the top of an open drain. That's the language Butler uses to describe it. Would be like a fatal poison in the foundation. So long as a minority was set aside to be bought and sold as chattel, dehumanized for the purposes of illicit um, pleasure, a practice that was then hidden and excused, tacitly condoned by polite society, and then regulated and sanctioned by the state, so long as that was there, it may be hidden, but actually there could be no lasting well-being for a society as a whole. So on the 1st of January 1870, under Butler's leadership, the Ladies' National Association issued a sharp, well-worded eight-point manifesto denouncing the acts as blatant examples of sex discrimination. A group of women brought that uh, manifesto to Parliament on that, on that date. The Contagious Diseases Acts, they argued, were not only dis uh, discriminatory, but they were also unconstitutional. They deprived disadvantaged, disadvantaged women of their legal rights. They violated the fundamental principles of habeas corpus, detaining an individual without evidence or trial, forcing them to submit to this examination. She called it a systemic injustice, and that language is also really important, a travesty of the rule of law. However effective they may be as sanitary acts, they contain within them a profound injustice. But what seemed self-evidently right to Butler didn't to those who benefited in one way or another from the existing order of things. And Butler's manifesto met with resounding silence. Silence in the press, 
silence in the house, no comment. 16 years of campaign followed, by which time Butler had been uh, labelled as unrespectable even by the most extreme of the women's movements at that moment. Those who were beginning to argue for women's education. Why not invest <coughs> your talents in helping women who actually can make benefit in their lives from reform? Why spend your time trying to help women who, who've chosen the life of sin? This is the kind of language that was thrown at Butler. 16 years, long years, in which the bedrock of Butler's political work was prayer. She writes more about prayer than anything else. And it's extraordinary to read this highly complex political and feminist theory developing in her work. And underneath it is this perception of prayer as the primary form of political agency. She looked back later in her life on that long wait, that 16-year wait, before finally in the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1886, the contagious diseases legislation was taken off the statute books. She saw that time as a gift from God, a period of time in which women understood and learnt to pray <coughs> together, understanding that the battle they were fighting was not primarily against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of injustice and oppression that could only be defeated in prayer. I would argue, actually, in a way that the women's movement coalesces around these networks of prayer. To pray for Butler was to resist being saturated in the norms and the customs and expectations, the ways of thinking about men and women that pervade the cultural mindset. Without regular time of focusing on God in prayer, the conscience becomes compromised. Even the way in which language is deployed the way in which the imagination functions becomes so satiated, so saturated by the surrounding values that it's impossible for the individual to act and think with independence of judgment. To act without knowing how to pray was for Butler to modify the external appearance of things, make things look good and clean on the outside, but to leave the substance of in, un, injustice unchallenged. To be a good leader in public and yet to be morally bankrupt in private was the essence of the double standard. She was not popular. She was not popular. And during those years of waiting, she shunned the searchlight of her critique on a lukewarm, passionless church. God's mercy, she writes, continues to be preached, but the great principles of injustice, of, which, of justice, of which he himself is the source, are practically forgotten. Taking Matthew's gospel as her mandate, she challenged existing religious forms whilst at the same time simultaneously sharpening and re-energizing the language of the incarnation. God himself must bow, she wrote, to meet the evil, must shoulder its deadly weight, grasp it in its depth, in its breadth, in its length, its infirmity, and thus and only thus to conquer it. Jesus, Butler insisted, not only welcomed the outcast, but he became the outcast, submitting to the shame in order to conquer it. And it's in this way that God liberates the sinner, but he also indicts the unjust that exclude them, particularly the religiously unjust. 
but go about the excluded. Lord, this is one. This is Butler's favourite passage from Scripture. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And using really familiar language like that, in a way, she's working, she's operating in a Christian culture where the majority of people are church attenders. And how do you actually use the language of scripture to critique a church which understands itself to have the monopoly on the truth? How do you do that? How do you do that as a woman who has no leadership, as it were, in the society? And it's the Bible in which Butler finds the language in the person of Christ, that Butler finds the language to talk about justice as incarnated in the person of Christ, who not only welcomes, becomes the uncrucified Arguably, it's really that capacity to dismantle, to critique, but also to build up a new way of thinking about the human person that's critical to Butler's leadership. And it was, I think, born out of an imagination saturated in scripture and in prayer and able, as a result, to encompass the extremes. The Bible is an extraordinarily extreme book. The extremes of pain and joy, hope, despair, evil, good, the individual as a unit, society as a group. And Butler's primary contribution is really another way of perceiving reality in which all the normative categories of power, including the normative categories of male and female power in her own culture, are overthrown. The prostitute becomes a sign, a symbol, not only of grief and hypocrisy, but also of the radical, transformative hope of the Christian gospel. And just the, the work that I've been doing on this woman over the last 12 months has really changed me. It's, it, it, it's given me a window into my own soul and realizing how deeply I've imbibed the narrative, unconsciously, I think, that somewhere along the line, Christianity and feminism are out of whack with each other, that the Bible and women have problematic relationship with each other. I've sort of imbibed that, I think, often unconsciously. And going back to Butler's work has challenged me with this individual whose imagination isn't limited, her Christian imagination isn't limited just to the individual life of the one person, that sort of private relationship with God. But her Christian imagination encompasses that private relationship with God, but all of reality every aspect of human reality, every aspect of society, culture, politics, economics. And that, that's really challenged me uh, as to the degree to which when I celebrate this year of anniversary, I'm really grateful that I am allowed to vote, that I get to participate fully, socially, politically, spiritually in the life of this nation. But I'm also challenged the degree to which Often I'm ashamed of the gospel. And Butler's life has helped me to think that through in a different way. But I commend her to you. And I hope I haven't talked for too long. Because I hope we can have some discussion. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, Sarah, so much for that. I think I can listen to you all day, um, partly because of the enthusiastic and engaging way in which you tell the story, but also because of the content being such that there are things I had never heard before um, and that I, I personally found deeply challenging um, and moving as well. Um, I'm just going to spend a few minutes responding to what Sarah has said and reflecting, and then we'll open it up to some questions from you. So National Prayer Breakfast is a moment for us, isn't it, to pause and to reflect on the Christian foundations on which this place was built, and the faith in God and the inherent dignity of every human being that can be found at the heart of our legislative structures. But like Sarah pointed to in closing in the talk, as a Christian and a, and a woman and a feminist, it can be hard to reconcile the evidence which suggests that the suffrage movement, contrary to popular belief, was very much motivated by Christianity and by the Bible. It is so encouraging for me to hear that and to re be reminded that the Christian faith is relevant. The Bible can offer wisdom and insight and good motivation for calling out the injustices we see in our world. In our very polarized world, faith is so often, often pitted as at odds with feminism. Religion as reinforcing the patriarchy, but it reflects a wider problem in our society. Somewhere along the way, faith in general, and the Christian faith in particular, have not been recognized as being good news. They're seen as offering chains instead of emancipation, fear instead of freedom, sparking hatred instead of love. In a recent survey conducted by Barna Group and World Vision, who I work for, we found that 81% of non-Christians do not believe that the church is making a positive difference in the world. Some 40% actively disagreed with the statement and 40% and said they did not know. Perhaps worse than dislike of the church is indifference and complete apathy. In our survey, we gave respondents a number of options for things that they might think it would be good for the church to get involved in. Helping the homeless, the elderly, advancing women's rights, etc. And even when given a list of options, a third of people just didn't know what to say. The little-known biblical roots of the suffragette movement are another example of the church being bad at its own PR a subject particularly close to my heart as a communication specialist. We have not told the story well enough. We haven't told a story that paints a picture of the world turned right side up by God, mm. a world where every human being has inherent dignity because they were made in the image of God. Women are still subject to inequality and mistreatment because of their gender. The fight for women's equality is far from over. Globally, women are less educated, their bodies subject to abuse during conflict and war. In the UK, every week, two women are killed by their partners. The Bible is needed now more than ever to shine a light in the darkest places. We are to shine that light not just in our wider society, but back on ourselves. Sarah spoke in a talk about Josephine Butler shining the searchlight of her critique on the church. God's mercy continues to be preached, she wrote, but the great principles of justice of which he himself is the source are practically forgotten. The church is in need of that searchlight. A recent survey by the Sophia Network, which was launched in the House of Lords a few months ago, um, found that two-thirds of women experience sexism in the church. There are barriers that they face precisely because they are women. 
the fight is not over yet. I long for my feminist friends to hear how the same faith that motivates me today was a driving force for the suffragettes and suffragist movements we're celebrating this year. But to do that, we need to shout louder about the God of justice and love and mercy. That means the church fighting for the cause of all those who are treated as less than. Minority groups, those living in poverty, those who are forgotten. It's not just about PR. I believe this is about the coming of the kingdom of God. So before we move into our question time, I've got one question to start us off, Sarah. Um, in listening to what Tim Keller was saying this morning and things that we've been saying um, throughout the breakfast, um, we kind of talked about the Christian roots of our nation. But why does it matter? I've been kind of really encouraged and thinking, yes, we are a Christian nation and we, don't, we shouldn't forget our past. But why, why does it matter? Does it make any difference in the current discourse around faith and feminism? What's really striking to me about Butler, and it's been really challenging, is that she doesn't move to the centre of power. She moves straight to the margins of vulnerability. And it's her capacity to lead by advocating for those who were unable to find a place in this society that is so crucial. And I think, as it were, through second wave feminism, we've understood feminism as the assertion of the self, as that self-actualizing culture, as it were, that Tim was talking about this morning. But what if it wasn't that? What if it was about the radical humility that seeks and prefers the needs of those who are marginalized and poor? That would be very countercultural for ideological feminism, I think, as it's developed in the 20th century. So why do I think it matters? Because I think the weak, the vulnerable, and the marginalized matter greatly to God because he himself became weak, marginalized, and poor. And therefore, it matters that we speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. That's what I think matters most. Um, there's an urgency. We're talking about human beings unable to represent themselves. I know many, many in our society. So rather than the assertion of the self and gaining of the, the right of self, as it were, um, that, that radical identification matters. Does that make sense? We've, we've lost the capacity for that, as Tim was saying this morning. And I guess kind of linked to that, um, you talked about Josephine Butler's work as fostering an overtly feminist consciousness. Um, so when you talk about feminism in 1918, how is that different in its motivations um, to the feminism of today? It is difficult when you move from a position of, of, of being marginal to being powerful. And women today are very powerful. And, and so in many ways, third, or perhaps we could even talk about fourth generation feminism, post-secular feminism, we have to, in a way, redefine what feminism is for. 
Now, that isn't to say that women aren't still limited, as you, as you said in your response. But women have the ability in this culture to mobilize the law, for example, as a mechanism of defense. So in a sense, it is beholden upon those who have much to care for those who have little. And there are women in our society, as you were describing, from those startling ab dom domestic abuse statistics who need somebody else to represent them. How is it different? Once marginalized, now actually pretty powerful. So how do we rethink what does it mean to have power and to hold the responsibility of power well for the sake of others? And there's something in me when I'm listening to people talk about the history of um, the foundations of uh, the nation in the 19th century and the Christian motivations of um, the welfare state or education or uh, poverty relief. And there's always a part of me that, that says, but wasn't everyone Christian? Everyone was Christian then. So what is it that marked um, Josephine Butler out? You kind of alluded to it in the talk in, in her finding um, language to articulate back on a culture that was um, what was Christian, things that are actually challenging and provoking. So, so wasn't, everyone just, wasn't everyone Christian? Or was there something distinct about this Christianity? And within feminism, I love that question. I found a letter that um, some of you may have heard of a chap called Henry Scott Holland, a fairly well-known theologian. Wonderful line in there about coming to faith. In the Butler's, um, he's describing a man who came to faith in the Butler's living room. And it talks about, it says literally, Josephine Butler introduced me to the fire and it was a wonderful description of uh, uh, this radical love for Jesus Christ and she had very little sympathy for the outward forms of religiosity that didn't have the power and love of Christ and so her constant move in everything she writes is to point as it were through and beyond the church to the person of Jesus Christ himself, taking all referent points from him. And so this language of interiority, language of intimacy, language that she draws actually from the 14th century mystics, the language of the fire and passion of love for Christ, she contrasts with formal doctrine, church hierarchy, practice of religiosity, form without inner life. And it's that contrast that's so important in her work and she's really calling the church back to a first love she's in the language of revelation would that you were either hot or cold but because you're lukewarm so she's not very popular <laughs> great do we have any questions i see one hand straight away here and then we'll go to the gentleman at the back there before i mean uh, I'm, I'm raj saab i'm from teesside um sort of controversial, particularly now, and it's a place to talk about controversial things. Um, so when, when you kind of look in the Bible, eldership, you'd see as male, okay. Uh, and somehow the, the, the eldership that Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about, etc., cetera, um, has this self-giving otherness about it that releases women and talks about women and, you know, you read all sorts of how widows and how, Unmar uh, unmarried and all sorts of things are kind of um, changes the culture, doesn't it? Yeah. How did Josephine kind of 
and there's also abuse of that. There's huge abuse of that then, probably, and certainly now today. How does that kind of fit into her worldview and, you know, anything else? So it's deliberately controversial, but no. it's very topical. Yeah, the, 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 the women involved in the women's movement loved the early church. They loved the early church. And they, they look at the radical elements against the backdrop of Greco-Roman society, where you're talking about elders serving, elders releasing and caring for widows and the poor. They loved the early church. They had a harder time with the church in later years. Even the Church of the Reformation, many of the women involved in the women's movement had a hard time. The Reformation shutting women up to their functions as wives and mothers. So they deploy the history of the church as a way of critiquing the present and saying, actually, if it was like that then, so we need to re-examine this text of scripture and find out how it challenges culture today. And they read those texts, those Pauline texts, through a very radical lens because they're using the new techniques of biblical criticism, higher criticism, historical contextualization to read those texts in their radical early church context. Man in the pink shirt. Hi, my name's Nick Cox from Air in Southwest Scotland. Um, I've got a lot of very strong women in our church, which is brilliant. I absolutely love that. And um, one of the things that I've been talking to them about recently, as uh, women who would identify as feminists, and I think I would as as well, uh, as a man, but is the whole discussion around abortion at the moment. And so hearing um, Josephine Butler and her, the Christian roots, I think is really interesting. And especially like thinking about what Tim Keller was saying this morning about um, standing up for the other and the laying aside of self. I, I know it's such a huge topic, but I wondered if you could say anything about as Christians, we, I don't believe at least, sorry, that we want to enforce our beliefs onto people who aren't seeking to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. but, but the more I think about the issue of abortion, it seems to me to be a justice issue and standing up for those who don't have a voice for themselves, which it sounds like was at the heart of what Josephine Butler was about. So is there anything you could say about that? I've thought a lot about this because I've thought, now, what would she get angry about today? It is legal to abort up to 24 weeks. That's gone back from 28 weeks because there's recognition of the medical viability, as it were, of life outside the womb. But there is no equivalent law for fetuses that are abnormal, with birth defects, with abnormalities. There is no law against aborting up to the very day before natural labor begins. That means there is one law for the healthy fetus and another law for the abnormal. That's a problem. That's a double standard. And I reckon Josephine's in very hard territory dealing with prostitutes, many of whom were law-breaking, and she was the first to talk about the prostitute as sinner. But what she went after was systemic injustice. That is the, in, the unequal treatment of human beings. Some in this category over here as chattel, and some over here as respectable wives, as it were. It's the dis 
disjunction between the two. So I reckon that Josephine Butler will have a lot to say about a law that treats differently the physically normal and the, quote, physically abnormal. And I think we should care about that. And I'd like to see the law for abnormal fetuses brought back to 24 weeks so that it is at the same legal point as the normal. That disequality is symptomatic of deep, insidious attitudes in our culture towards those who are physically disabled. So I'd like to see that changed because I think that's an inequality. And I'd rather talk about that than whether or not there's a justice issue for women over abortion because we have legal abortion in this country and I don't think that will ever change. That's a huge subject, isn't it? Whoa, and I've, been, right I've laid my cards right on the table there <laughs> in the spirit of parliamentary For debate. equality's sake, I'd love a question from a woman if possible. Yeah. If there are any women who want to answer, here's one here. And then we'll go back to that gentleman. Hello, I'm Jo Soper from Exeter. Um, I suppose I was just a different, a different strand of what you've been speaking about, which I thought was fantastic. Thank you both. Um, but it's the biblical roots thing, because we, we lead a church in Exeter, and sort of on the ground, most people... Find, find the Bible to be a source, well, um, at least some of the Bible, to be uh, the source of some of the discrimination and the prejudices we've been talking about. And I'm just wondering, you know, you talked about historical contextualization, but for most people, <laughs> they're not really reading in that way. And so they either stop reading, you know, they pick out a few bits from the Bible, but they've, um, I, I sort of feel daunted by the task of, the information even and the teaching task that there is now in a culture that's not even reading that much to kind of read the Bible well, because as you've described, actually we should be able to go back to the Bible to call on people uh, for justice and love and peace and all these good things. But in my experience anyway, most people are now feel, feel that the Bible is the source for the opposite. Yeah. I don't know if you've got any wisdom. Um, well, I'm going to give a pitch for the Bible Society. <laughs> uh, I used to be a trustee, um, and the Bible Society does amazing work in just addressing the fact that people aren't reading the Bible, and so therefore making it relevant to our contemporary society. So there are lots of, kind of resources, there are events like this one today, um, that we that can really help us in kind of engaging with the whole of the Bible. I know particularly as a, a, an, a an old millennial, um, that my generation don't don't read the Bible as a book, a physical book, and the psychological what that does psychologically to you when you're reading, you're picking, and you're scrolling on your phone. It means that you select you select what you what you read, and you don't see it where it is in the Bible. You don't know what's come before, you don't know what's come after. Um, so that's a real challenge to people of my generation is to think contextually uh, about the Bible. Mm. Yeah, what, the only one thing I would add is that. Butler was very involved with women who had become Christians who'd formerly been on the streets. And she just got them to read the Gospels, to start with Jesus and read out into the Bible from the person of Christ. And maybe starting with some of the Pauline epistles m might be a bit heavy. <laughs> and, and just to, to, to start with the Gospels, ground people in their love for Christ. They're drawn by the beauty of Christ and then are able through the lens of Christ to, to begin to move into all the beauty of the scriptures. So that's what she did. 
My name is uh, Olu Omelaju, uh, pastor in Rodarab Evangelical Church. Uh, first and foremost, I have to say a big thank you to the uh, speakers, especially for giving me good uh, history lesson this morning, <laughs> something I've never had before. And uh, in the same sense, I have to say a big uh, gratitude to God for the work of Josephine Butler, because part of which I believe this nation is reaping the, the benefit of having a female prime minister, uh, Theresa May. I believe that's part of the outcome of that kind of uh, work. My question is, in view of all this positive work that she did and which other believers are doing, in this nation, how are we going to ensure that Christianity is not eroded even from this land? Because uh, thank God for many religions that are coming to the country or many faiths that are coming to the country. But looking into the foundation of this nation, as we heard even from uh, various speakers this uh, morning, how are we going to ensure that biblical ethics, Christianity, is not eroded in this nation, either by the feminist group or by the other people who believe in Christ? We're going to pray and pray and pray and pray some more. our final question. Thank you very much. My name is Marilyn Keenan and um, I was born in Sydney and um, my knowledge of this is what I understand. I can't say that I've gone and searched it all out academically um, but it has been an interest to me. Um, obviously I heard about suffragettes and things but I didn't know the whole how very what a big issue it was. Um, I came here finally in 99 to live in London. Um, and I'm just, it's just really interesting to me uh, when Australian states were federated in 1901, we, we chose a, a, to have a constitutional monarchy and we decided that um, as we were from Britain, the, the, the British monarch would be our monarch. Um, but as far as I know, there was never any um, thought that uh, women would not get a vote, and and there was a it, you know the, it, it was not an issue. It was it was just given. Um, and when, when I say it was a given, you know it was a, it was part of who we were. And uh, but at, at that stage we had a you know our whole society was British, um, and. I just wonder why, um, and well, my family anyway were in incredibly um, uh, Christian. I, I wonder why it was that that in our, obviously we had a slightly different culture. Why, why was it that it was never considered that women would not be given, you know, women would not vote um, when it was such an enormously big deal here? A beautiful woman called Caroline Chisholm. 
Yeah, good woman. And you know, um, she just got on a boat because she felt God prompted her to get on a boat and worked in Sydney in the harbour with woman after woman after woman coming off the boats, many of them then moving straight into the sex trade. And she found employment for women coming off these boats, alternative employment, in s being seamstresses and um, working in respectable domestic service situations. And she tirelessly worked for, for the bulk of her life out there in, in Sydney. And really, I would say, one of the primary reasons that, that that was the case in terms of suffrage being male and female far more quickly than it was here was her work. And we shouldn't underestimate the work of ordinary human beings who are simply faithful over very long periods of time to the things that God has prompted them to do. And she's an example of that. Unfortunately, our time has uh, drawn to a close. Um, firstly, I'd really like to say thank you very much both to Chinny and to Dr. Sarah Williams for your contributions this morning. Maybe we can show our appreciation. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I found that in enormously edifying, challenging, stretching, spiritually kind of renewing, but also um, a kind of real desire now to go out and kind of make a difference. So I hope that it's um, also inspired you to tell others, particularly about the story of Josephine Butler. Uh, in that particular question around how do we help people navigate the Bible, I'd like to just draw your attention to. Here's one I prepared earlier. Um, uh, in your packs uh, that you received at your tables this morning, there is uh, a, a booklet here called The Bible Course. This is a course that we've developed at Bible Society uh, with a wonderful man, Andrew Ollerton. Um, inside of here is everything you need to run the course. It's, um, it's got a DVD inside as well, and it's got all the material. Um, if you've done it before and seen um, uh, the kind of the, the breadth of Scripture and then how that helps us navigate uh, and understand particular issues and particular texts in the context of the wide story of Scripture. You'll know how powerful this is for unlocking some of those issues. Please do share it with other people if you've done it already. If you haven't done it already, please do look at it yourself and consider running it. Uh, the DVD is on the inside cover, and it's a gift to you uh, today from Bible Society. If you'd like to know any more about the work of Bible Society, please do talk to me or to uh, either of the two ladies or Paul, who's sitting there, and maybe wave his hand um, uh, and talk to us afterwards. But thank you very much for coming. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.